Welcome to Up to Date Talk, a podcast now presented weekly in which we discuss a recently published paper that was the basis for an update to one of our topics in Up to Date and a related entry in our What's New section. Today, we'll be talking with cardiologist Dr. Brian Olshansky, Professor Emeritus at the University of Iowa, an adjunct professor of medicine at Des Moines University, and a section editor for our cardiology topics. I'm Dr. Nancy Sokol, general internist and a senior deputy editor at UpToDate. The paper we'll be discussing was published in February 2018 in the New England Journal of Medicine, first author Maruch, entitled Catheter Ablation for Atrial Fibrillation with Heart Failure. So we're delighted you can join us today, Brian. Good to talk with you again. Just as an aside, Brian and I were medical residents together in New York City just a few years ago. A few years ago, that's correct. So how are you today? I'm doing very well, Nancy. Great. So um, before we get into the specifics of the Merge paper, I thought we might talk a little bit about the background of atrial fibrillation and heart failure. So why don't you share, first of all, what the prevalence is of AF in patients with heart failure? and what the clinical impact is on these patients of having both conditions. Well, sure. Uh, what's known is that uh, atrial fibrillation and congestive heart failure often occur concomitantly, and uh, they've been described as two epidemics, in a sense, uh, that are really uh, difficult problems for us to manage in cardiology and in general medicine. The incidence of atrial fibrillation increases with the severity of the heart failure, such that uh, if someone has uh, New York Heart Association functional class one heart failure, the incidence of atrial fibrillation may be between five and 10%. But uh, if the individual has functional class four heart failure, uh, the incidence um, is upwards of 40%. So it's a very common coexisting problem. And do, do we know which comes first? Uh, it's been looked at in different ways, and it can go in either way. In other words, atrial fibrillation can precede the development of heart failure, and uh, this could be due to the presence of atrial fibrillation or due to the presence of rapid rates leading to a tachycardia-induced cardiomyopathy. So that's one thing that can happen. And on the other hand, the presence of congestive heart failure leads to left atrial enlargement due to increasing left atrial pressures, which can cause the triggering of atrial fibrillation, which can start out as paroxysmal, leading to ultimately persistent atrial fibrillation. So it can go either direction. So a bit of chicken and the egg. Right, and, and it's not clear which necessarily comes first in all cases. But this is an important issue in terms of treating the atrial fibrillation. If it's simply a consequence of heart failure, maintaining sinus rhythm may not have the same benefit as it would if the atrial fibrillation was contributory to the worsening of the congestive heart failure. Mm -hmm. One thing we do know, however, is that patients who have both heart failure and atrial fibrillation are at greater risk of total mortality and sudden death than the patients who just have congestive heart failure. And in terms of uh Overall treatment strategies, I know that there's a debate whether one should aim for rate control or management of the rhythm as first priority. So what's your general approach to managing a patient who's symptomatic with AF and heart failure but who isn't currently acutely decompensating? 
Well, the first thing I think that's important is to determine what the rate is. And rate control is the, is the first step. But ultimately, patients who have atrial fibrillation and have heart failure would likely be benefited by maintaining sinus rhythm, if at all possible. So I normally attempt cardioversion or uh, control of the rhythm with an antiarrhythmic drug, if possible. Rhythm control not only helps uh, AV synchrony with atrial contraction, uh, and but it also leads to proper uh, rate response with exercise. So the best way to control rate is actually to maintain sinus rhythm in most cases. Now, there are some individuals who've been in atrial fibrillation for five, 10 years and, and have attempted to be put back in normal sinus rhythm. So there, there are certain situations where it doesn't make much sense to be aggressive for rhythm control. But for most patients, an attempt at conversion to sinus rhythm is the first step when possible? Yes. Okay, and one last piece of background before we get into the paper. The paper evaluates catheter ablation as a way to manage the AF. So can you tell us a little bit about what catheter ablation is? Why does it work? So catheter ablation is a technique in which uh, electrical catheters are placed in through the legs under anesthesia, and there is a catheter that's placed from the right atrium into the left atrium to basically identify the pulmonary veins and then ultimately isolate those pulmonary veins electrically. This can be done through kind of a cauterization procedure, which would be using radiofrequency energy, or it could be done with cryoablation or a freezing procedure. So, so how do the pulmonary veins uh, cause atrial fibrillation? It's not completely clear, but one thing that seems to be the case is that there is muscle in, in the pulmonary veins, what's called muscle sleeves that are innervated by sympathetic and parasympathetic nerves that seem to be trigger sites for allowing ectopic beats, extra beats, to then initiate the atrial fibrillation uh, in the body of the left atrium. Now, once atrial fibrillation has been present for a very long period of time and there is heart failure present, uh, it isn't just the pulmonary veins that may be responsible. They may be partly responsible for initiating the problem, but then there can be other circuits that can occur in the left atrium that can then perpetuate atrial fibrillation. So even with this catheter ablation procedure, it's still possible to have atrial fibrillation uh, following it. Is that right? No doubt. And in patients with congestive heart failure, the risk of having recurrent episodes of atrial fibrillation are greater. And if the episodes have been present for a very long period of time or the patient has failed antiarrhythmic drug therapy, the chance of the procedure being successful on the first time is less. What's also known is that many individuals require more than one procedure to achieve success, but even then success cannot be guaranteed. And there are some risks. There are some risks of the procedure. But I will say that this procedure has now been uh, utilized for upwards of uh, 15 to 20 years, and the technology has improved and the expertise has improved so that the risks of doing a procedure like a catheter ablation really is dependent upon the skill and experience of the operator. So let's turn now to the Marooch paper, and can you describe for us what patients were enrolled in the study and what interventions were compared? Yes, these were individuals who had had atrial fibrillation and congestive heart failure. They had New York Heart Association class two, three, and four 
congestive heart failure with systolic left ventricular dysfunction with an ejection fraction of 35% or less, and they had implantable cardioverter defibrillators, and in some cases had cardiac resynchronization therapy devices. Patients were randomized to receive medical therapy or to undergo ablation. And do we know what the medical therapy was? Was it well? Yeah, the medical therapy was not necessarily consistent uh, throughout uh, that uh, arm. Some people were on rhythm control medications, uh, and many were on rate control medications. So about uh, 30% in the medical therapy group received rhythm control therapy. And how many patients were in the study? There were a total of... um, it was a highly select population of uh, about 363 patients out of a total of 3,013 uh, that were uh, considered uh, for enrollment. And this enrollment took place over a very long period of time in multiple institutions. So the 90% of the patients who weren't uh, enrolled in the study, was it because they didn't meet criteria or the patients weren't interested or what, what were the factors do we know? Well, we don't really know. There's a combination of reasons, Um, but uh, there was a large number that were excluded um, for various reasons. Some didn't meet criteria, some didn't want to participate. For some, uh, perhaps the investigators felt they were not good candidates for the study. And so that is a really critical point here, because when we then apply the results from the study, we have to consider all of the individuals who were not participating because the results may be completely different if all patients with heart failure and atrial fibrillation were enrolled in the study and then randomized to ablation or best medical therapy. Okay. And what outcomes did the investigators look at? Well, they had a combined endpoint of heart failure, hospitalization, and mortality. Okay. So for the outcome that they looked at, what did they find? The investigators found that with respect to the primary composite endpoint of heart failure hospitalization and total mortality, that patients that were randomized to ablation therapy had a better outcome than the patients on medical therapy. How much better? Uh, Quite a bit better. The hazard ratio was 0.62, and this was highly significant. So a marked reduction in the endpoint of 28.5% in those undergoing ablation versus 44.6% in the medical therapy group. For, for the combined outcome? Yes. Okay. So on the basis of this uh, finding of there being a significant difference, UpToDate uh, issued a practice-changing update, making a weak recommendation, grade 2B, suggesting catheter ablation rather than continued attempts with antiarrhythmic drug therapy or no antiarrhythmic therapy in selected patients with symptomatic atrial fibrillation, heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, and failure or intolerance of antiarrhythmic therapy. The grade 2B suggests that we don't think that these results are necessarily applicable to all patients or are entirely definitive. Well, I think the recommendation made by UpToDate is is right on the mark because there are several significant problems with this manuscript. First, about 40% of patients that were enrolled and randomized were not tried in amiodarone therapy, which would be one standard therapy that would, could be potentially useful. Perhaps they didn't want to take this medication, but th- there was also other issues with regard to selection 
bias that may make a difference here. Because when you look at the total population, there were specific subgroups that did better uh, with ablation therapy. And this would not be surprising. Uh, those patients who had New York Heart Association functional class two heart failures or who were less sick, patients who had better ejection fractions, patients who were male did better, and patients who had been taking beta blockers. Uh, so these were patients that were probably optimally medically managed to start with, that were healthier and were more likely to have a better outcome from an ablation. The risk of, of, of side effects or adverse effects from an ablation uh, is not necessarily uniform across the board. And of course, with patients with very severe heart failure, the risk of complications goes up as well. So when you look at patients that uh, were sicker, the chance of getting benefit from an ablation would be less. So I think that this population that, that underwent ablation was in part selected out the patients were not blinded to ablation versus no ablation. So the patients were hoping perhaps to get an ablation. So there's some placebo issue that could be potentially going on here. But there are some other issues that I think are important when we think about these data besides the selection of the healthier group. We don't really know in terms of the outcomes if they're completely accurate because there was a significant number of patients double the number of patients in the ablation arm that were lost to follow-up. Double compared to the control group. Yes. No, it, it, yeah. So it was, uh, I think it was a, a, something like 23 in the ablation arm out of uh, about 170 so, so versus about 10 in the uh, uh, drug therapy arm, which is a little strange because if those if the patients were lost to follow-up because they died, that would completely change the endpoint measurement. So bottom line, it would appear that catheter ablation is advanced technology that can help some but not all patients with heart failure and atrial fibrillation and should be used selectively and when the expertise for having a, uh, a good procedure is available. Is that right? I would agree with that. And I think that one of the issues that are gonna, that's going to be um, debated quite a bit as time goes on is whether catheter ablation should be considered first-line therapy for atrial fibrillation in patients with congestive heart failure. And based on this information, I do not think we are quite there yet. And I do think proper medical management, using optimal medical therapy for the heart failure, attempting to cardiovert and, rate, and or rate control the patient in, in atrial fibrillation is, is the first-line approach. And then consideration of the chronicity of the atrial fibrillation with respect to the heart failure and also determination of the relationship between the heart failure and the atrial fibrillation. Did the heart failure precede the atrial fibrillation for a period of time? In other words, did it really change any of the you know, decompensation parameters that occur with heart failure? Or did the atrial fibrillation initiate the process and heart failure then developed subsequently so that one could implicate atrial fibrillation as the cause for the problem? I think. Looking at the two issues, atrial fibrillation and heart failure, it's not simply the fact that these two things coexist in a concomitant way, but that they can exist in a way that there may be some causal relationship. And I think that really becomes important in terms of making the decision about what to do with the patient. Of course, you can't always tease that out. Correct. But when you can, it's helpful. Well, thank you so much for sharing this uh, wealth of knowledge with us. And I uh, look forward to talking with you again soon. Thank you, Nancy. Take care. We hope you enjoyed this discussion. If you would like to get more information on any of these studies or other recent updates, 
Please visit UpToDate.com and look at our What's New and Practice Changing Updates sections. We appreciate your feedback, and please leave us a review on the podcast service you use to access these podcasts.